This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. About 20 years ago, I heard William Stafford read his poetry for about 20 minutes. For a young, aspiring writer like I was then, he was mesmerizing, a mix of poetic energy and grandfatherly wisdom with a high-spirited charm. I think it was the first poetry reading that I attended in which I realized that poetry didn't have to be solemn and ponderous to be profound. All of us in the audience laughed a lot, and we were moved It was only after the reading, after I'd said how enjoyable I found Stafford, that some bitter professor type said something like, you know, that's just his shtick. He's a much darker poet. I was troubled, and the remark sent me into Stafford's work to see if it was true. I was happy to discover the same joy in Stafford's poetry as I'd experienced in hearing him read, but there was more to it. His was a complex vision, And to this day, I can recall lines of his that I read over two decades ago. I'm not alone in this experience of feeling as though Stafford's presence in poems haunt me. Readers sent letters to Stafford by the thousands, and his fellow poets responded to him in life and in verse, though not always with praise. In honor of what would have been Stafford's 100th birthday in 2014, editor Becca Lockman has gathered together a collection of these poems. A Ritual to Read Together offers us an intimate portrait of Stafford's legacy, from his abiding sense of place, to his promotion of nonviolence, to his work as a mentor and teacher. The collection takes its title from one of Stafford's poems about the importance of listening to one another, of telling our stories. It opens, If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world and following the wrong god home, we may miss our star. I sat down with Becca to chat about her experience of assembling an anthology under the star of Stafford. Becca Lockwood, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's good to be here. We are so happy to have you here today, and you are the editor of A Ritual to Read Together, Poems in Conversation with William Stafford, and I'm very excited to talk about this book. I spent last night reading together with the poets (laughs) who wrote this, and it was quite the pleasure. Uh, But the, the question I want to start you off with is, you know, how does one come to put together an anthology uh, of poetry about another poet. What led you to this? And, and there's an interesting thing in the introduction where you say it was the universe that led me to this. It's not every book that begins with the behest from the universe. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm saying there is, you know, when enough things we might call coincidences come together, um, if you're 
open to it, you listen up in your life. And I was at a point where I was just finishing up my third degree having to do with creative writing and poetry, and yet I had no idea what my own writing life might look like. And I loved having mentors in my graduate programs and undergraduate programs, but I knew, well, I had this inkling that the writing life was so much more than inside academia, even though that's very important too. So when I stumbled on William Stafford's writing, it was only because my friends kept saying, you really need to read William Stafford. And I was resisting. <laughs> um, to be honest, I thought he was just another older white dude that people wanted me to read. <laughs> um, but the more that I explored his life, the more I was attracted to his work. And so coming out of my graduate programs in writing, wanting to do things like keep writing, for instance, um, keep finding mentors, I knew that I'd never meet him in person, but putting together an anthology, I could meet other Stafford scholars. I could meet writers who were struggling with some of the same questions that I was. Um, and I knew that I would be really challenged by the project. Um, so I tend to <laughs> get myself into those types of things. Yeah, we suddenly find ourselves neck deep in projects and we wonder, how did I get here? Exactly. Yes. Well, so not everybody who's listening might know who William Stafford is and mm -hmm. was and his mm -hmm. legacy. Um, so, so what was it about Stafford that your friends thought, you've, you've got to meet this guy, right. right? You've got to find this guy on the page. Right. Well, at the time I was interviewing um, World War II gentlemen, uh, aged gentlemen, who had been drafted and decided instead of going into the military, they were going to serve with a program called Civilian Public Service. There were about 12,000 men and women who served during World War II. And Stafford was one of them. And so was my grandpa. So while I was doing research and doing these oral histories, I came across a book that I brought today, too, um, that had an interview with Stafford in it, um, as well as my grandpa, which none of my family you know, knew this book existed. So that's what really started this whole quest to find out as much as I could about Stafford. And he was um, an educator. He taught at the college level for years and years at Lewis and Clark College. Um, he was uh, a poet. Uh, he wrote a lot of prose as well, too. He has lots of books on writing and the writing life. He was a poet laureate of the United States. Um, and he was also, in his own way, a peace activist. I'm not sure that he would be comfortable with me calling him that. <laughs> but really, I see everything he did, both in his classroom and outside the classroom, um, coming back to the question of, how does violence and nonviolence um, affect our everyday lives? Well, that's wonderful. You know, I'm still, so I know a little bit about Stafford, and, and maybe there are some listeners out there that have caught a poem or two, you know, the one about the deer on the highway, yes. and that gets around uh -huh. and things like that. But you think about, here's a poet that somehow garnered the attention of dozens of poets that you've collected together, 600 and some that submitted to you, um, in response to, to celebrate his work and to challenge his legacy. Um, I've seen collections like this with Whitman and Dickinson, but there are a lot of post-war poets out there that don't somehow have this kind of attraction uh, for whom anthologies are not being collected. Mm -hmm. So 
what was it about Stafford that you think had this kind of draw for people? Well, Stafford, in a lot of ways, is an enigma um, because he didn't like to be put into a box. That's why I say today, you know, if, if he were here, he'd be tapping me on the shoulder and saying, oh, really? <laughs> but I think that he was a teacher um, and a friend in, in the writing world who always encouraged you, no matter who you were. Um, and, you know, when I meet his former students today, they still remember that feeling. Um, he would answer every letter that he got. Um, so he was very meticulous about putting aside time for not only his own writing, but then corresponding with other writers. And for me and a lot of, of folks who go through an MFA program and then say, what's next? I think building that community, just having that for the rest of our lives is something that if we're serious about writing, we need to start building and keep building. So Stafford immediately gives us that example of somebody who's doing that both inside the academy and out in the community. Um, he rarely graded his students. So he also is known for being really stubborn <laughs> about pushing against um, rules of any kind when it comes to the writing life. Um, so I think people of so many different backgrounds are attracted to him because of that as well. Um, and he really did write every day, starting in his late 20s, early 30s, when he was in those work camps in World War II. And I've asked his son, Kim, is that really true? You know, you can tell me if it's not. And it was true. Even Christmas, even days he was sick. That was his most important work. And he has the saying, do the most important work first and do the hardest work first. And for him, even though he was this prolific writer, it was still really hard. Um, but as soon as he dated that page, he knew he was safe. And it had been another day of him writing. Uh, and when you say write every day, isn't he famous for writing two or three poems every day? Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of them he would go back to and take a line here and there. You know, it wasn't like a full poem. One reason he wrote every day was to let himself off the hook from having to do that. Um, so that's also such an incredible example um, of just write to write. Um, and as hallmarky as that sounds in the writing world, it's really true. So um, he, even though he uh, passed away in 1993, writers are still going back to his life example continuously because of his willingness to do that. I can remember as an undergraduate in the first poetry workshop I ever took, uh, him being quoted, and there was this example of like, well, he writes a poem every day, and uh, you know, the, the teacher who was then telling me the story of William Stafford, said, you know, then Stafford was asked, well, what happens if the poem's not very good? And he said, oh, I just lower my standards for that day. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think the point is that you do it. And in doing that, you are, you know, you're, you're engaging with the part of yourself that you want to see grow. You're engaging with your creativity and you're engaging with the world around you as well. So in everything he did, I think he was very connected to that idea of community and, and how he could be engaged with that community. Um, so when I first really started researching him, 
I was at a point where in my writing life, I was feeling very entitled and very bitter <laughs> as a student, as someone trying to publish. And so I was very interested in ideas of nonviolence, but I was not incorporating them into the way I viewed my own writing life, if I was being serious with myself um, or the way that I taught. So since first discovering him a, f- a few years ago, now a lot of his ideas influence my creative writing classroom, um, my submissions when I'm sending them out and getting them back, rejections as well. Um, so he's he's a real light for me in a lot of ways. So you put together this anthology in which, you know, how many poets did you finally end up publishing? Oh, gosh, that's a good question, yeah, Eric. I have not thought about that in a while. It's got to be. It's close to, uh, I think it's 110. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing number of people who at least spent a day mm-hmm. writing back to William Stafford, though the quality of the poetry suggests a lot longer than that. Um, there are some wonderful pieces in there. Uh, but the book is is subtitled Poems in Conversation with mm-hmm. William Stafford. It's not Poems in Celebration. No. It's not Poems in Memory of. Um, it's a different kind of anthology. Could you tell us a little bit about how you were bringing these poems together? What kind of experience you wanted to create for the person who would sit down to read this book? Yeah. Well, I, I definitely imagined both Stafford enthusiasts and perhaps people new to Stafford's work sitting down with this book. And I did not want to perceive him as a saint. I think that there's a danger in that. And I think um, some other poems, um, you know, step over that line a little bit when it comes to Stafford. And so I really wanted to have this be a true dialogue, meaning there are some poems in this anthology that really wrestle with some of his, you know, his biggest beliefs, I guess I'd say. And I wanted that to be in there. Um, so this year is his centennial. He would have turned 100 this past January. And so there are a number of books out right now that are looking at Stafford's work, recollecting some of his poetry and prose, his aphorisms, um, his stories as a teacher. And then also, how do we bring communities together now and say, how is Stafford's legacy affecting us today? So I wanted this book to reflect um, poets from all walks of life because that's what Stafford was attracted to as well. Um, And really being someone who had just graduated from my MFA, not having a name out there so much in the writing world yet, I was having a difficult time finding people to submit poems. And as soon as Ted Kuzer, thank you, Ted Kuzer, sent me a brand new poem that had never been published before, and I could use that name, um, they just started flooding in. So it was a real uh, roller coaster ride for me as a first-time editor because I was corresponding with Robert Bly and Donald Hall and Toy Derricotte and all of these uh, writers that I really admire. Um, so I, it was a real, really good growing experience for me. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's even poems in there that want to kick William Stafford in the shins, <laughs> aren't they? I, you know, I was wondering if maybe you'd be willing to read one of those, you know, as much as there are, there are also poems of great admiration. Yes, yes. Well, I, um, that is the title of, of the poem of mine that I decided to include because I didn't feel like there were enough poems pushing against Stafford. And I guess, um, you know, this is 
my response to Stafford um, enthusiasts talking about, you know, oh, he's just so wonderful and perfect. Um, and I think there's a danger in that. Um, sometimes you just can't get up and write in the morning. <laughs> so I'm looking for that page, Eric. There it is. Okay. It's a good sign in an editor when the editor doesn't know where her inclusion is. <laughs> well, you know, that also, what we're talking about ties into me having to send out rejection emails and letters to a lot of writers. And, you know, how would Stafford do that? Um, and I decided that I was going to put a personal twist to every rejection I sent out. And so it just took a really long time. Um, and, but I, I, overall it was a rewarding experience. Um, okay. This morning I want to kick William Stafford in the shins. And it starts off with an epigraph, his quote. To a successful, bustling, triumphant accomplisher, what's your problem? This morning, I want to kick William Stafford in the shins. It's after nine and I'm still in my bathrobe. I willed the coffee weak. Get going, Bill hollers from the carport again. I've been up for seven hours. I've been waiting to hear what you think of this line. The night before, I felt his owl face hovering, his cool breath smelling of pine. He paced and chanted something about beauty and diligence, something linking rivers, forgiveness, smoke. I woke assuming I dreamt William Stafford in a sweater vest in my bedroom. But on my breakfast plate, a fat manuscript titled Poems You'll Never Write on a Starry Almost Morning. My typewriter scandalized a note in its teeth. Do the hardest work first, it taunts without error. Know the weight of a happy problem. I make him pack his bags for good. I tell him just how over it is, this everyday submission. Anyway, my friends are already famous, and I can download whole seasons of Masterpiece Theater to make me forget that first stanza uncurling. I dash off to yoga, don't say goodbye, pretend my core is a deep roots kind of tree, shunning to-do lists in Shavasana. I make my way home after, up the steepest hill in town, nearly step on a hummingbird flattened on the road, its body a silver piece of origami. Motion stopped, my life all ears and arrows leaning toward the right and easy words. That's lovely. Thank you. And there's also a, a lot of humor in that, which I think is, is doing justice to Stafford's legacy. I think for those people that do know him or kind of of him, you don't think of humor as being so intrinsic to his personal vision mm -hmm. and his poetry, but it does pop up all over. It sure does. Yeah. One of my favorite poems of his is called Easter Morning, and he's pretending he's in this situation where a missionary comes to his door and he lets them in and then realizes what he's done after an hour and he can't get them to leave. And so, you know, it's, it's this very sardonic kind of view of, is that really you, Jesus, you know, <laughs> um, out in the world? Um, yeah. And I think just the idea of somebody willing to get up from four to 6 a.m. in the morning, which was his routine, you think, you know, this guy has got to be a monk of some kind, right? Um, 
And I don't know. It's, it's that question that a lot of us get. What's your, how do you write? You know, what's, how do you do it? Um, do you have a cup of coffee? Do you, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I think that Stafford really gives us permission to just make our li- our writing lives, whatever we can, make it our own. Um, we don't have to be like him. Yes, for listeners who aren't uh, poets, this is a big obsession of writing. <laughs> what is your writing ritual? In fact, yes. the anthology is collecting the writer's rituals of the past. You know, oh, Balzac yes. puts broadening apples on his desk. Um, you know, the, the purpose of the the book and uh, one of the wonderful things about it is to build community. And you've actually created in the back of the book um, something like prompts or, you know, nudges to inspiration for a lot of the poems in the book so that uh, the book can not only become an occasion for reading, but an occasion for writing. And, and there's a wish expressed by you um, in one of the editor's notes that you hope this becomes a kind of galvanizing principle. And I'm just wondering, so there's this view of poetry out there, right? It's, it's, it's the province of the solitary individual, right? Like, it's the romantic myth of the genius off in the garret writing the poetry <laughs> that burns in the night and things like that. Uh-huh. And so, you know, and I think as a, as a young writer, I was certainly taken up by that. And, you know, anytime somebody passes a Starbucks, you see somebody who seems to be under the grip of that myth, even though they're in Starbucks, so you wonder what's going on there. Um, but tell me a little bit about how poetry can build community you know, it, it seems like, is poetry the right place to go to start building community? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, well, one thing that's come out of my um, obsession, I guess I'll say, with with Stafford is uh, a war and peace-related poetry workshop that I'm leading right now at Ohio University. And my undergrads in there are wanting to only write those poems where they feel the muse like a bolts of lightning come through their bodies. And what I'm trying to show them, hopefully, is that poetry is right there in the everydayness, which is something that Stafford preached a lot as well. So, for example, I'm having them interview family and friends and see what surfaces there. How can they take those oral histories and write a persona poem or write an erasure poem or, you know, um, find maybe a topic for a whole series of poems that will turn into a chapbook. And by doing that, I think, I hope that they are making these new discoveries about their families and backgrounds. Um, and they're also bringing up these conversations that might not happen otherwise. So I think that's one important thing that poetry can do. And of course, you know, um, it's, there's evidence that anytime there is a war or, um, some some tragedy going on in the world, poetry sales go up, you know, and that, that begs the question, why do we go to poetry? And I think there is that um, longing for community that will allow us to feel deeply and to communicate on a level that maybe we don't get um, in other genres sometimes um, or other platforms, I should say. Or even in regular conversations. Yes, exactly. So... Um, And I also think that as more and more writers are getting MFAs and PhDs, I mean, we have over 800 creative writing degree granting programs now in this country alone. 
I think that writers are figuring out how to create those communities after they graduate, which is what it's all about. Um, so um, arts communities of all kinds interacting. So how do how do poets interact with painters? You know, how can they bring a conversation to their community? Um, so there's some really exciting things going on. Yeah, and and as if. The, the challenge of community building weren't enough for, for poetry. Uh, your interest in the book's interest is also interested in Stafford's legacy of peacemaking and anti-violence. Mm -hmm. And in the introduction, you ask quite a question, right? You say, how does a writer look at injustice in the face and continue to work with diligence and joy toward a greater good? This is what I want to know. This is what I want to live. And it's a beautiful aspiration. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, I'd want to put the question of poetry to you. How is poetry an engine for that kind of aspiration and hope? Mm. Well, I think for me, um, poetry is a way of shaping, reshaping, re-envisioning what could be. But it's also a, an act can be an act of mourning, you know, um, and <sighs> poetry is also something that I carry very physically within my body. So, um, you know, I don't think it's an accident that you could meet, literally there's a story of a homeless man in Portland, Oregon, wandering into a library where they're doing a Stafford celebration and they try to kick him out. And he says, what's going on in here? And they say, William Stafford. And he starts, you know, um, by memory saying this poem in, in its entirety of William Stafford. So there's, there's no accident that we carry these things with us. Um, and I think going back to that quote, you know, it's, it's a challenge to myself as well as to hopefully the readers of this anthology, but um, Stafford was really able to do that in a lot of different ways. Not only, you know, having, the government basically say the next four years of your life will be ours. So you'll be at these work camps. Um, so finding a time to write. But he also faced a lot of tragedy in his own life. He lost a son to suicide. Um, he, you know, was always struggling with feeling like an outsider, um, even though he was living on the edges of a lot of issues um, and areas on purpose. It's not always an easy thing to do. So I think a really hard question, it's Eric. Why poetry in that instance? Um, do you have thoughts on it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was struck by you saying that, you know, when when there's some sense of public threat or, or, yeah. or public violence, that, mm -hmm. that more and more people turn to poetry. And, and I thought your answer was, was very eloquent and rung true, which is, you know, poetry is often a space in which the utterances, the, the poetic voice is as true as we can make them to our experience, um, is as deep as we can make them to our mm -hmm. experience. And often those times in which, you know, as Orwell pointed out, the public is at war. It's a time in which the public language becomes corrupt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that we suddenly are doing freedom keeping missions and we all know what that means. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so 
to go to a space where you feel as though you can have a genuine interaction with another human being at their best and most authentic, um, which is often what the space of poetry can provide. And so that seems to me that, that maybe is something all the more precious at a moment where life feels tenuous and mm -hmm. the ways that we communicate with one another feel mm -hmm. tenuous. Exactly. I like your answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will ask you another impossible question. They'll have a completely different order, um, which is anybody who puts together an anthology like this obviously has numerous poems that they enjoy and, mm -hmm. and admire for all kinds of different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering if there's one that's kind of lingering with you at the moment that you'd be willing to share with us oh, and read with us. Yeah, easily. I mean, this, yeah, I could go on and on, but I, I think the first poem in the collection is really special. Um, Robert Bly and William Safford were very close friends for decades. And this poem is one that Robert Bly sent me through snail mail, just with a little note saying, heard you're doing this anthology for Bill. That's great. Here's a new poem if you think you can use it. <laughs> um, and, you know, he's, he's not going to be with us that much longer. Um, and so this, the topic of this poem is even more poignant. It's called Conversation with Bill Stafford by Robert Bly. Well, Bill, what's it like? It's about the same. Wind is still waiting for human beings to catch up. You know what it's like. You wait by the car a while and finally go on alone. A friend of mine died a while ago. She wrote, I'm okay, but the food is terrible. There's some lack of information here. Maybe that's why people are so heroic. Robert, I can see you're starting out on one of your long, reckless roads again. I used to defend you at parties. I didn't always agree, but I do like people to be calm. Well, Bill, tell me what it's like. It reminds me of those camping trips we used to take with the kids. You pack up, but no matter how well you do it, you always leave something behind. It's a beautiful poem. I was struck by the number of poems in here, um, which would include the poem that you include by William Stafford's son, Kim, mm -hmm. um, that have a sense of being haunted by Stafford. Your poem, you know, mm -hmm. you've woken up and there's Bill, um, Bly's conversation, uh, Kim has a conversation with his father that's kind of ongoing. Um, and I'm just wondering about, you know, that, that idea, I think it's a very happy haunting for mm -hmm. most of the poets mm -hmm. in here. Um, but that sense that here's a figure whose legacy is, is, vivid in a live daily experience kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, everything he did was so epic in the sense of, for instance, at the Stafford archives in Portland, I, I believe they have over 50,000 letters. I mean, that's just the letters <laughs> um, that he kept copies of. Um, and so it, it, you do at times feel overwhelmed, I think, um, trying to live up to any sense of his legacy. Um, but at the same time, when I ask, because I, I do find myself asking this question often when I listen to NPR or whatever um, conversation about the world today, well, I wonder what Stafford would have to say about this. I wonder what he'd be writing about. And 
he's already saying it, you know, um, like I said, I'll never get to meet him in person, but I'm, I'm getting to know him through his poetry and, and everything else. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. I think that's great. Well, here's a, here's a, a follow-up to that. Um, as somebody who's had this, this rich encounter with Stafford and his legacy, um, if somebody's listening to this that maybe has read a poem or two or just mm-hmm. happened upon it, right, that long car ride, you know, it's hour seven, keep going. Um, <laughs> right. Where would you send them off first yeah. to begin their encounter? Because there are so many books of poetry and there's just, yes, he was so prolific. I would say that you need both a book of poetry and a book of nonfiction, which is by his son, Kim Stafford, called Early Morning um, my life as, uh, oh gosh, early morning is the title. The first part of the title, um, William Stafford, my father, I think is the next part of the title. And it's such a gorgeous book. I literally read it every year, um, because it tells so much about his life connected with his work. So I would get that right away and you'll find that it's a quick read. Um, and then the next thing I would do, um, a new, Selected Poems just came out from Grey Wolf Press called Ask Me. It's a thin little volume, um, less than 100 pages, and I would start there. Yeah, I think it's always, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, what should I read, what should I read? Mm -hmm. Quality over quantity and richness of encounter over, you know, don't get the four volume, this or that, right? So that's wonderful that Grey Wolf Mm -hmm. has just done that. Mm -hmm. And I think... You know, the first major book of poetry you put out there, Traveling Through the Dark, won the National Book Award when he was, uh, well, he published when he was 46. Um, so that's always a great place to start, too. Wonderful. Well, given that you have had a very intense encounter and, and done all this work to put it together and created, um, I think, this this monument that I think will go on being a living monument to Stafford, um, where are you going as a poet next as a kind of exemplary figure of someone who's had this encounter with Stafford <laughs> and is moving forward? Yeah. Um, well, I do have um, a book coming out next spring called Other Acreage that explores small farm family life in the United States, particularly my family's 1840s farm that will probably be sold outside the family by that time. And... Um, I am also on a panel at the next AWP convention on experimenting with nonviolence in academic creative writing workshops. Um, And Kim Stafford is a part of that panel. Um, So I am finding that this anthology has really linked me to folks who are asking some of the same questions about the writing life and what it means to be a poet in the world that I am grappling with as well. So those are two major things coming up. And I think all of us are asking larger questions about what it would mean to live with less violence, for sure. Yes, yeah. And it does really start with the self, you know, with one life at a time. So right now, for example, when I go home belittling myself as a teacher and, um, you know, I have to think, okay, so how am I using nonviolence again? (laughs) And if I'm giving it to my students, why aren't I giving it to myself? So that's one challenge I'm continuing to uh, grapple with. Would you be willing to leave us with one more poem? Sure. This poem um, is by the poet Wendy McVicker. 
And I think it speaks to Stafford's idea that there really isn't such a thing as writing block, that you will always have this thread of inspiration and support if you're sitting down to write. It's called When You Can't Find the Poem by Wendy McVicker. When you can't find the poem you want, the one that travels out to the frozen river at dusk and listens for the first crack of ice breaking apart, revealing veins of pewter and white in the dark, that moment when meaning opens, a current under the rigid surface loosening, beginning to pull the world along into the first days of spring, into the question that answers everything, seems to answer everything. When that poem will not be found, you must celebrate its small life with another. Becca Lachman, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. Thank you, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Becca Lachman, editor of A Ritual to Read Together, Poems in Conversation with William Stafford on the New Books Network.